You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 83. This is part two, talking with Dr. Jennifer Whittington. She talks about what it's like to leave a toxic job. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we need to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Virtues. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business and Surgery Series. This is where you learn those lessons, not taught residency. Take us through, like, when you started looking for jobs. I know that you had some difficulty with where you could look for jobs, because I know you wanted to stay in New York. And so take us through, you know, getting your first job. Yeah. That's a place that I certainly could have done my homework better. And again, I've learned some hard lessons and come out with some cuts and bruises because of it, but they certainly were learning experiences that made me better. Um, I knew I was geographically limited in my job search um, because of my custody situation at that time. And I also knew that I wanted to continue to focus on um, GI and HPV surgical oncology. So I interviewed around and I didn't interview at many places. And when I did interview, there were a lot of, um, I've always gone on vibe. If you get a good feeling about somebody or, you know, something, I've always gone with my gut and my intuition. And this was one place that I think that it led me wrong simply because I didn't ask the right questions and I didn't follow up on the right questions. And a key mistake that I made was not hiring a contract lawyer to look over my offer letter slash contract. Um, a couple years after the fact, I did, you know, when I was moving to my next job, I did have a contract lawyer look at that. I said, hey, you know, I know you're reviewing this contract, but won't you look at this one? He laughed and said, no one reasonable to have allowed you to sign this. So... And again, the reason I, at the time, I justified not hiring a contract lawyer was because, oh, I'm broke. I'm paying legal fees. I have to pay my nanny. There's no way I can afford this. And some advice that I give to the residents that I work with is that I don't care what you have to do, even if you have to borrow the money, because many contract lawyers will start out around 500 bucks. Even if you have to borrow that money, it's worth every penny to hire a contract lawyer to look over that because one, they might catch some things that you should be negotiating for, number one. But number two, if they see some real glaring flags, then you can run and just not take that job. So that's big. Um, And I think going through a letter point by point with the person who's hiring you with the really important things like, how is our call distributed? How am I reimbursed for this call? What's my block time look like? What are my expectations? Am I going to be offered any protected research time? And making sure it is in black and white, because if there's any loopholes or any anything that's not completely understood with those points, you can really be used and abused if you're not careful. And that's big. And I think the biggest red flag that I would offer to anybody, always, always speak to the person who had the job before you. That's huge. 
And the second job that I had was a, a wonderful job. I was very happy there and sad to leave. And the real only reason I really left was I needed to go home and take care of a family emergency. But, um, you know, as they were interviewing for people to replace me, I was more than happy to speak with them and tell them this is a great opportunity and you're safe here. And that's critical because in my first job, when I did ask to speak to that person, they were bad mouthed and I wasn't given their contact information. And in hindsight, I just chalked it up and believed what that person said, but that was a critical mistake. And the advice that I would offer is that if someone for whatever reason is deterring you from speaking to the previous partner, don't take that job. What are, are some of the things that you would have asked the person if, if you were able to get in contact with them? One, what was your experience? Um, how was your call distributed? Were you reimbursed for that call? Um, were you comfortable with the care that was being provided? Though those are in hindsight, those are the things that I would have asked, but also just how are you treated in this job? Right. What are some of the other red flags that you noticed, you know, now in retrospect, but at the time that you were, you know, somewhat dismissive of, if you, if you were on the interview, what would you have told yourself at the time? Knowing now what I know, knowing now what I wish I had known then, don't take this job. Yeah. That's that's just it in a nutshell. Now, I know that you're now in this second job and take us through what happened with that. Yes. Yeah, so um, it was really interesting transitioning from my first job to my second job. My first job, I was six, well, seven months into it when the pandemic hit. And at that time, I was actually very fortunate because one of our sister hospitals um, was all of the hospitals in New York were hit very hard, but one in particular was, and um, I reached out to them because all elective surgeries were canceled within our hospital system. And um, I asked if I could cover a critical care and do their trachs and pegs because I wanted to continue to be active during the pandemic. And they were thrilled to have me and I was thrilled to work with them. And, you know, I still work with these people today and over the past four years, they've become not just colleagues, but friends. So that was one good thing that came out of it. But by the time the pandemic rolled around, I already recognized that, and even well before that, that this job was not a good fit and that I needed to get out of it. I was afraid of retaliation, and appropriately so. And I was very fortunate that one of the other surgeons in the group recognized, you know, what was happening. And I, I'm always careful to say to me because I don't want to take on a victim mentality. And I think the most important thing is I learned some really valuable lessons in this first job about how to um, stand up for myself, to stand up for my ethics and what integrity and what I believe in. And to also how to, carefully navigate keeping myself professionally safe were really critical things that I learned. And I was fortunate that this one mentor helped me navigate getting credentialed at another hospital before I resigned because I knew the vindictiveness and the fallout that would happen if I didn't do that. And, you know, we're all taught textbook, the right thing to do is three months notice 
and, you know, let them know when you're going for your second interview. But given that the pandemic was coming on, there was was no second interview. Um, I was offered a job, you know, after the first interview and after they had followed up with other um, other references who think who agree that I'm a good surgeon and a good surgeon scientist. And, you know, there are plenty of people that would vouch for me that I'm a safe and a good surgeon. So the most critical thing was making sure that I was protected and that I was safe to go to a new job before I left that one. And I did give notice. I gave what was required at our institution, which was 45 days again, because I knew the fallout of me resigning that I was going to, it was, I was going to have, I was not going to be treated well. I knew what was coming. Um, Before you go into the transition, which obviously I think is so important, all the information that you learned on that, um, what were the red flags in the job that you had um, that you would advise? Like, let's say I'm interested in this job now. What were some of the things that, that, you know, raised your red flags as you're going through this job? I want to speak very carefully on this. Um, Of course the biggest red flags is when you're not treated, um, with respect. If you're condescended in front of other team members, I think that's really important that there's like, everyone should have mutual respect for each other. We are all human beings and everybody comes to work and wants to do the best for the patients. And regardless, we're all human beings. And everyone should be treated with a base level of human respect. That's number one. And, you know, I really, my dad passed away in 2011. He was a coal miner and he had a very high stakes, high stress job. He was a safety foreman in the mines. So that meant he was underground and he was responsible every night for checking gas levels and checking cuts of roofs and making sure that hundreds of men got home to their families after the end of the shift. That's a really high stakes job. And there are ways to cut corners in that job the way there are ways to cut corners in any job. And I was always really proud of my dad that he was a very textbook standard of care kind of guy. He followed the rules and he held people accountable. And I always respected that about him. And he always had this saying that, you know, whatever he told my sister and me both this, whatever you do with your life, I want you to be, I want you to work hard and be good at it. But I want you to be able to look at yourself in the mirror at night before you go to bed and feel good about what you did that day. And in that job, I couldn't say that. I didn't feel good about the care that was provided. And that's all I can say. That's my opinion. I didn't, I didn't agree. And if you can't go to bed at night and rest well and feel confident that you've done the best thing for your patients, that's not the job for you. And I know a lot of your experience and I also know why you don't want to share a lot of it. Very reasonable. Uh, I think it's safe to say all of us want the job satisfaction of being masters of what we're able to do and being recognized for it when we're in control of, if we're given the opportunity, 
that's mastery of what we do. And recognition is other people recognizing it. And if you do not have the opportunity to be a master or you don't have the recognition, then either way, a lot of times that is the first sign that this job is not for you. So if we decide this job is not for you and you actually have some concern that a resignation is not going to be easy on anyone in this situation... So take us through the steps that you learned is necessary when you're transitioning from one job to the next, which is applicable to anyone, whether it's you know good feelings, bad feelings, or whatever. There's certainly a list of things that are required to transition from one job to the next. And I have spoken and worked with many people who have left jobs that were somewhat hostile and you know had been trouble getting these things after the fact. So take us through some of the things that that you need to be prepared for when you're changing jobs. So in a perfect world, you know, you would tell your current employer at your second interview with the new place, hey, I'm looking for other places. And ideally, when you make that decision, you do give three months notice that that's in a perfect world. And perfect world or not, the things that you have to line up. First off, you need to make sure that all of your licensure is up to date, um, your state licensure, your DEA, your MPI, and that everything's correct. You do have to go through getting documentation from risk management. And in my case, that I didn't have any active litigation against me, or you know, I guess for people who do have active litigation, what's going on so that can be transparent as you transition to your next institution. And of course, you have to get a case log of what you've done over your time at your previous institution. You also have to secure letters of recommendation from either a chief or chair of surgery at your current institution. So, and again, I was very fortunate that the other surgical partners were wonderful and good colleagues and supported me, but even they recognized that they needed to go about it carefully because of the concerns of dealing, you know, with the, uh, the manager. Got it. And so how did they help you navigate that? Was it just, you know, identifying this list that was needed? Yes, because I wouldn't have known. I mean, again, I was extraordinarily naive when I interviewed for the job. And no, these are things that people do not teach you in residency or fellowship. You know, the, the real questions you should be asking and negotiating. And when it is time to, you know, again, in a perfect world, when it is time to resign, you hope that people are fair and kind, but no one tells you what to do when they're not. And again, this was a career saving event for me being around a few general surgeons who did help me navigate that and safely extricate myself from this job that was not a fit for me. After transitioning out of this and getting the help that you needed, I guess I should say like, you know, with that, the two month notice, you know, what would you recommend when someone is, you know, leaving the job that is not a good fit and, you know, things are not going as well. Um, What would you advise someone who is now trying to transition out of this job that's been difficult? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. And this is something I think that I handled really well. I was very proud of how I handled this. Um, first off, I had my, re- I had my resignation letter, letter ready the day that I resigned because I was seriously concerned that this person would like kick me out of the hospital and I wouldn't even be able to finish that two months there. I was afraid that that would happen. There was no record there was no certainly no reason for that to happen but i was prepared for anything so i had my resignation letter ready that day um that was one thing um when people 
are verbally abusive or even physically abusive, um, the most important thing is do not be reactive. Keep a calm head. My mantra during that whole two months was I am the consummate professional. So anytime that I was being verbally abused or humiliated, I just said to myself, I am the consummate professional. And I but most of the time, just let it roll off my back. Or if anything was particularly egregious, I would just say, please do not speak to me in that manner. And that's, and again, that whole, um, everything that I learned in family court about keeping a cool head was extraordinarily helpful um, during those two months, just knowing how to not react or even respond when someone's being unprofessional. And, you know, I was very flattered that the staff, the nurses and, you know, other, the PAs and other surgeons, they were sad to see me go. And I was honestly sad to not work with them. I enjoyed working with them. And there was rumor that they were going to throw a little going away party for me. And then, you know, the, the manager forbid them to have a party for me. And then they waited for this person to go out on a little vacation and everyone threw a party for me anyway. And that meant so much to me that at least one time people stepped out of the box of that fear. And, you know, I, I felt very loved and appreciated when that happened. And I know it was a small gesture, but it sure meant a lot to me. And I think, you know, when we're in a difficult job, sometimes it could feel all consuming. We think that everyone thinks something of us. And it sounds like you were able to effectively build allies around where you're at, at all levels, which, you know, when you're in a difficult situation, it's so easy to slip into shame and, you know, isolation. And it sounds like you were able to find allies in multiple places, which I think is such a valuable lesson in someone who is getting, who is in a difficult situation and having a difficult time navigating it is just how many allies there really are out there, that there are a lot of people who could look out for for us if we are able to get past, you know, the worry and the concern that we have. Definitely, you know, and that talking about allyship, that's huge because when I was in a fellowship and going through my divorce, I isolated again because there was a lot of shame there and I didn't want to be a burden to anybody. I, but I was I was struggling, but I didn't want to burden anybody else. And I needed help, but I was too ashamed to ask for help. It was really sort of a vicious cycle. And some of that was my fault, but the, what I did learn and even recognize then, because towards the end of my fellowship, I did, you know, really develop some strong mentorships and some people that I trusted and respected. And it was really great. And people that I still talk to today. And I realized how important that mentorship and allyship is. And I think once I started that first job, you know, even though I was in my first year in practice, was new and doing the first year surgeons do, people recognized that I was a thoughtful and safe surgeon and that I was technically good and that I spent time with my patients and that I was thoughtful about my diagnoses. And the bottom line was I was a good doctor and I was a good surgeon. Not just that, but I was affable and friendly with the staff and with everyone I worked with. And I was always available to help. And Everyone talks about those three A's and I was those three A's. And when those people saw how I was being treated and they saw that I was a good person and a good doctor, you know, my work spoke for itself. And I think that was the most important reason that they were willing to help me. And, you know, I rather than be ashamed, because initially I was ashamed. I was like, why am I being treated like this? What what am I doing to bring this on? And when I did a real self-inventory, I realized I 
I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve to be treated like that or spoken to like that. And to have other people witness that and recognize that it wasn't right and it wasn't fair and to have my back again, I, I felt supported and I felt vindicated. That's fantastic. And um, I know that you also said something very helpful is, you know, when we are you know, putting our resignation in, or if we have a bad feeling, a job, it may not be our choice is, you know, we, sometimes people are told to leave that day and it can be a challenge of, you know, how to navigate the the transition from one to another. How did you transition with the patients that you ter- took care of? Was a letter sent on your behalf or was it just, uh, Yes, a letter was sent on my behalf. And again, I was really only a year into practice and then the pandemic had happened too. So that with regard to elective surgery, that certainly slowed the case down. But yes, a letter was sent out, which was very helpful. But also like I called all the patients that I personally had taken care of. I called each of them personally and let them know that I was leaving and that they were in great hands at that center and that, you know, I trusted that they would receive great care and, you know, it was left at that. So that that to me felt right and felt personal because I took care of their cancers. Like I felt and there, there certainly was a lot of guilt in leaving. And, you know, one of the things that was said to me during my resignation was that I should be ashamed of myself for abandoning my patients and abandoning that partner. And that was extraordinarily hurtful because there's already guilt there. And to rub salt in that wound just isn't going to help anybody. Like that's just, that's not a, a helpful thing to say to anybody. No kidding. Um, so now that you're in your, your new job, take us through uh, what happened with that. Yeah. So, and again, and especially as an early career surgeon, and I say this, you know, I have a CV that have, you know, I've published well and, I've mentored people and I've been on committees, but if you look at, um, you know, the jobs that I've had, I look on paper, like I've bounced around a lot. And if I were someone reviewing a CV, I'd be like, Hmm, that's a red flag. But at the same time, life happens. My first job was not a fit and leaving that job was one of the best decisions I ever made. My second job was a great fit and I loved that job. I had wonderful support and mentorship I was able to successfully and quickly build a practice. Um, I exceeded my RV targets in the first year and became someone that I felt like the community trusted and started referring to me reliably because I worked really hard, um, number one, to have good outcomes, but to be a good communicator with them and their patients. And everything was great. I was getting started with my research. I really enjoyed working with the medical students and residents and everything was on track and it was great. And unfortunately, my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer last spring. And again, that wasn't our first round with cancer. And for my parents to have died and then this happened, I knew I needed to be there. And I took the time that I needed to and it was the best decision I ever made. And the administration at that job were incredibly supportive of me and even held on to my job as long as they could, you know, to allow me to potentially come back to it. And as, her, as everything, you know, went on with treatment and whatnot, 
things worked out that they needed to hire a new partner. And I continued in my academic role and, you know, supporting one of the Ph.D. students that I was on her committee, continued to support her in her research. But my clinical practice, I stepped away as they hired a new partner. And as I mentioned earlier, I even helped in hiring that new partner. I helped interview and I reassured him that he was joining a great practice. So it was heartbreaking because I was in a job that I loved and was doing well at. But when I got real honest with myself and who I was and the fiber of who I am and thinking about the decisions that you will or won't regret later in your life, I did. And it was right. And long story short of that, you know, about the time she was finishing up her treatment, there was an opportunity for me to do um, a critical care fellowship at the same place that I'd worked during the pandemic with people that I trust and really respect as surgeons and as physicians, and they're just great people. And during a period of time, I'd taken a fair amount of trauma call to pay off my legal fees. I mean, that's initially why I started doing it, but also I liked it. You know, there there is some similarity to a number of complex surgical oncology procedures that we do, and then some of the reconstructions you may have to do with someone who has a devastating abdominal trauma. And I think taking that call made me a better surgeon. Um, it made me more thoughtful. It made me more efficient. And it helped me. I, by the end of three years of doing that, I was completely out of debt. So, and that was a lot of debt. It was $320,000. That's so remarkable. I did something that made me better, but also financially helped me. And just as a parent, like to be out of debt, and knowing that if anything ever happened to me or anything ever happened to her, we wouldn't have this hanging over our heads. That's a relief because, I mean, I grew up lower middle class and my dad was a coal miner. And when the mines were doing well, everything was good. But when the mines were not doing well, my family struggled and all the families in the community, because most of the families were coal mining families, everyone struggled. And debt is scary. I mean, if you're debt, and you don't have a finance, if you're in debt and you don't have a financial safety net, that's how people become homeless. That's how people become bankrupt. And I've seen that happen to people. And that's, that's why I am so anti-debt. And that's why I was so passionate about getting out of debt. And again, that avenue to get out of debt also made me a better surgeon and making those connections and that networking to, to have a group of people say, Hey, this is kind of weird and unorthodox, but won't you come be our fellow for a year? You know, and people have different religious backgrounds, but for me, I believe God provides and God provides in some of the most unexpected ways. And that's what happened. And now where I'm at now, um, I will be staying on as faculty at the place where I did my critical care fellowship. And it's a, it's a unique job that is, a real fit for me. It makes me very happy. Um, it's incredibly supportive faculty. Um, several female, several women on the faculty who have children are all incredibly supportive of each other, which is great. Like I said, these people aren't just colleagues, they're friends. I, I trust these people. I trust them with my patients and I trust them, you know, as part of my community, my village that I've built. And I will be doing full-time surgical oncology. Um, I will also be taking trauma and critical care call, um, but that will be my main focus. And I also have the opportunity to do some really um, unique disparities research that is, I'm really passionate about because I see the community that we take care of. And 
particularly in New York, you know, there are private hospitals and there are city hospitals. And one thing that I've always been passionate about is that, and especially growing up in a lower middle income family, everybody deserves standard of care. Everybody does, you know, someone that goes to a safety net hospital should have the same level of care, preferably better, but at least the same level of care that they're going to get at a private hospital. And that's something that I'm really proud that we can provide at the center that I work and learning more about the social determinants that, you know, keep these people from presenting at earlier stages in their cancer journey and learning how to better um, to better help those people is something that I've become really passionate about over the years, particularly after the pandemic. So, again, God provides and something that was very unexpected. It all just kind of worked out organically the way that it was supposed to. And the lessons that I've learned in this journey, they've made me tough, but they've also made me a better person. They've made me someone who's more self-aware, more aware in general of what other people are going through. And it's made me extraordinarily resourceful. I mean, I will survive. And even if that means that, you know, I have to get out and find, you know, unique ways to make money to keep custody of my daughter and make sure I can finish a fellowship. I, I always figure it out. I always figure out a way. And one thing that I'm flattered by, but I feel very compelled to do you, I have medical students and residents who come to me and they're experiencing and, and I'm not, I haven't turned 40 yet close, but not there yet. And I've been through a lot, you know, for someone who's not even 40, I buried both of my parents before I was 25 and, you know, I've been married, I've been divorced, I've been a coupled parent, I've been a single parent and I, I've done all of this while working full time. And, you know, I have medical students and parents approach me who are taking care of elderly parents, who have parents that have gotten sick, who've been sick themselves, who are going through divorces, who are just trying to navigate which fellowship they want to do and where and knowing that they feel safe to come to me and ask questions and know that they're going to get to my the best of my ability, unbiased advice that can hopefully help them grow and learn. I, I'm honored and privileged to be part of their journey. And if there's any way that I can help them navigate things that are very challenging in your life, it's an honor that I can help them. You know, if, if nothing else, the things that I've had to endure that have made me stronger and better, I'm hoping those lessons can help other people too. Yes. And I know that that is the main reason why you wanted to come on here and share some of these stories that you have, because of, you know, the person who is experiencing even one of these many things that you've had, you know, really needs to understand that they are not alone um, and that there is help and that there is hope. And, you know, you can draw on these lessons that you've had in your life and, you know, get beyond that and really, you know, overcome these challenges that seem so insurmountable at the time. Yes, I think that's a great point, because at the time it did seem insurmountable. I mean, there were times that I couldn't let my daughter see how scared I was. Right. I, I could not let her see that. And there were many a days that I would cry in the shower because I didn't know how I was going to afford groceries that week. And um, there were times that there was actually one month that I couldn't come up with the funds to pay my au pair. And 
I went to her and I cried and I was just like, I am so sorry. I can't pay you this month, but in a couple of months when I'm an attending, I will give you a raise and a bonus because then I can, I'll pay you every cent back and I'll, I'll pay you extra because you've been so good to me. And that's the thing, you know, along the way, there were people who stepped up and helped me. I mean, my program director allowing me to realign my research months to be during that time that I needed to be with my lawyers and I needed to take care of my daughter until my au pair arrived. He didn't have to do that. And that was incredibly helpful that he did. And I was, certainly wasn't the most productive fellow with regard to research, which was really sad because I started that program with a, a solid CV and a PhD and could have been, certainly have been more productive from a research realm. But at the same time, true to the fiber of my being family had to come first and they did. And that's, I made the right decision, but I was grateful that, you know, he was supportive in that sense, but certainly, you know, little things like my au pair being graceful with me that one month that I couldn't pay her and the people that did have kind things to say was really, they were, there were people who were there for me when I needed them. And one of my very best friends, she's a, a surgeon, a general surgeon in Shelby, North Carolina. And she had just had her second child. And it was the month that it was the month that I found out how much my lawyers wanted me to pay them. And I, when they told me how much it was, I, I called her and I cried. I said, I don't know how I'm going to do this. She goes, I'm coming up to see you this weekend. And she came and we did things that there was no like, for instance, when and someone when I was in res fellowship, they made a you know, a comment. They were trying to be helpful. They said, "Won't you just re go relax and get a pedicure?" And I remember like tearing up and just thinking, "I can't even buy my groceries this week. Like, how in the world am I going to afford that?" And that weekend that my friend came up from North Carolina, like we went to dinner and a little like she paid for dinner and she said, "We're going to get pedicures and we're going to get ice cream." And it was um. She has no idea. Actually, she does have an idea because I've told her many times. But that trip up just to be with Heidi and me, my daughter, during that time and just something as simple as like paying for dinner and buying ice cream. That just that solidarity of saying I'm there for you when you need me, because you find out who your friends really are when you go through things like that, because there are people who step up. And there are many people who scurry away and don't want to be associated with you because of the stigma of these things. And um, I remember who the people, I remember who did what. Um, you don't forget those things. And I will be forever grateful to the people who were there and supportive of me when I need them and hope, you know, hope they never, I hope no one ever has to go through these things. But, you know, if they do, I certainly hope that I can be there for them the way that they were for me. Unbelievable. What is your next steps here? What do you want to do next? How has this changed the trajectory of your life? Oh, well, I think in many ways, that's a great question. You know, I am very at peace with how I've set up my life. I built my village. You know, when my village fell apart, I rebuilt it. And I'm a country girl that grew up in the mountains. If you told me that I would be living in New York City for any extended period of time, first I would have probably laughed and then I would have cried because even my first two months of living here was absolute culture shock. But 
I accepted it and then I embraced it and I've learned to love it. Like, I love that my daughter is growing up here and this is such a culturally rich place. And by rich, I mean that it's so diverse that she gets to see how so many other people live and respond to life. And I see her growing up and she's very progressive and goal oriented. And it's a great place to raise a little girl. Um, I am consciously partnered with my best friend, someone I reconnected with, you know, 20 years later, that is a wonderful person and a wonderful supporter, which is great. And that community that I've built, you know, I have friends that live in my building. I have friends that live in my neighborhood and we get together regularly. I have a group of professional women that I've become friends with and we're all in different fields. One is a researcher at a very prestigious prestigious university here. She just had a baby by herself by IVF and another woman who's a lawyer. And we all talk about, we all have similar struggles, even though we're in different career paths, but I've built my own group of friends. I've kept my friends from residency and medical school and all walks of life who have been there for me. So I still have that village, but here in New York city, I built a group of my own friends. I've built friends where, you know, they're my daughter's classmates and there's a community there and even just a community within the building that I live in. So there was something really beautiful to me that when my village fell apart, I rebuilt my village and that's, that was powerful and unique. And even from a work perspective, you know, in my first job, it wasn't a good fit for me, but it also very much taught me who I'd, don't want to be and who I do want to be. And the things that I do want to be is someone who provides excellent care to patients that is standard of care and that is the same level is both a quality of care as well as equity of care, the same kind of care that they're going to get at any hospital um, because they deserve that. Just because they're undomiciled or uninsured doesn't mean that they shouldn't get the same care as someone who can pay for it. And I'm proud that I get to be a part of that. And with, you know, I like to think of myself as someone who's still that triple threat. And there Arnold mix all that. <laughs> um, the most important thing is that um, I've built a community and built my village back that my daughter has a place to grow up that's progressive and it's safe. And I've built a community of my own friends. And also just within work, I've built a wonderful community. Um, particularly in my first job, I was shown in many ways who I don't want to be. And it also gave me the courage to rise up and become who I do want to be. And I want to be a surgeon who provides excellent standard of care to all of my patients that's textbook and anytime you know as, as surgeons we all know not everything is textbook not everything fits in a cookie cutter but when it's not in a cookie cutter that it's something that I have a safe space to talk about with my colleagues and that we can all you know in a multidisciplinary fashion come up with the best plan for the patient in in a democracy which is is good I think this speaks to when someone feels like their village is falling apart is just to recommend that I recognize that there is hope that, you know, when your village falls apart, that all is not lost. 
you find another village, you build another one. And, you know, I think that there's people out there that really need to hear that um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, especially through divorce and leaving a job um, and, you know, some of the challenges that can come with that is that, you know, just because your village falls apart, doesn't mean all is lost. That's, that sums it up beautifully. And it's when the village does fall apart, if that happens, you do have the strength to rebuild it. And, you know, again, Providing excellent standard of care to my patients is very important. Being a teacher and a leader and a role model to the students and residents that I work with is really key to me. And again, I'm I'm always so privileged and honored when they seek me out to ask about, you know, one, what do we do with this patient? Ask me, you know, standard, the things that you should be learning as a medical student, but also the soft skills of how they navigate the challenging parts of their life or you know, for me to be a role model to them and show them, yes, you can be a surgeon and have a family. And even if your family doesn't look like the Hallmark Christmas card, that's okay because you can still do it. Um, and being that role model for them is very important to me. And not just you know, the medical students and residents, but also some of the PhD students that I work with, showing them that you can be a woman in science and still build your career and still seek out the research questions and go about that in a way into the things that you're passionate about and that you think will grow your field that, you know, even though your home life doesn't look like leave it to beaver, that you can still excel at work and create a professional life that works for you and define your success and still be very happy at work and very happy at home too. I think that's fantastic. Um, And so, you know, everyone is really going to be anxious to see what is, you know, your bigger plans. Like, I know that you are looking more towards uh, trying to help on the national stage and things like that. What do you want to accomplish? Do you think if you, you know, if you could have anything that you want, what is it that you really want to accomplish? So certainly, you know, within local regional, I think some things that are very important to me is one to provide an excellent level of care to my patients. And again, many of my cancer patients are undomiciled and um, uninsured. And same thing with a lot of the patients that come through our ICU and they deserve the same level of care that they're going to get at a private hospital and to continue to provide that care, but also research ways and try to find grant funding in ways that we can provide easier access to their care for those patients is something I'm very passionate about. And continuing to be a role model on that local and regional level to medical students and residents and, you know, my peers. I certainly hope, you know, just within the ACS that on a state level, we can bring more awareness to the disparities that still exist in our city for patients living in certain boroughs. And, you know, on a national level, seeing other women rise in surgery is really important to me. And we we all have different paths. You're going to see women who have children and those who don't. You're going to see people who've been divorced and people who aren't and people who come from all walks of life. And particularly to for people that want other options for Um, family planning. I mean, and to have more opportunities for women to store their eggs and who maybe choose to delay child, um, you know, family planning. It it sounds like you have, you know, such a great idea, like everything that you've lived through has given you perspective that is allowing you to kind of synthesize this 
what you've been through and see it on a grander scale and see what needs to change in the world. And so that's why, you know, I think that your story is so compelling is, mm-hmm. is you've sort of synthesized, I think what one person has like one issue and then you've had like several all at once <laughs> enough to kind of take all this and really be an advocate for your patients and for the residents and you know, the students and all too. So, I mean, I think that your story is going to help so many people. I'm so honored that you came on to share this. I appreciate that. And, you know, one thing that I think is really important on a national level, we all come from different backgrounds and all have different avenues of family planning. And some people choose not to have families. But one thing I'm really passionate about is that no surgeon who's a parent should struggle providing child care. And that's something that I hope on a national level that I can be an advocate for to find other ways for subsidized child care to be offered to trainees because that's a tremendous stressor and it's really hard to completely focus and develop yourself on becoming the best surgeon that you can be if you're stressed about who's taking care of your child or how in the world you're going to pay for it. And I think that's something that on a national level, many of our um, organizations, we can do a better job of supporting surgical parents, um, men and women, and non-binary um, persons as well who Who's, who may struggle um, financially or even logistically providing childcare. And that's something that I'm extraordinarily passionate about and, and looking at ways to explore how that can be subsidized on a, on a broader scale. I think that's a great mission that uh, I hope the ACS picks up as well. Uh, Well, Dr. Whittington, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and being so vulnerable because there's so many people that are living in shame and not sure how to overcome it. And for you to share how you overcame all of this is just so inspiring. Thank you. I, I hope, you know, I hope that my story can be a source of inspiration for people because there were certainly times that I didn't know how I was going to get through this, but I did. And if I can do it, I'm certain other people can do it too. That's fantastic. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. Thank you. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.